Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karen, one of your hosts today. And I'm Rebecca, back again and excited for this ninth episode of the third season entitled The Adult. And I'm Ahmed Abujarade, a guest host for this evening. And I'm Renak, a new host to the podcast, ready to dive into these stories. And I'm Selena. In this episode, three authors document life living with the adult or the adults who shape their entire beings. This piece is by a new author to Life Out Loud, Raoul McCormick, and was actually inspired by Raoul's award-winning paper called Between Two Worlds, Codas and Their Interactions in Society. In New York State, born and raised, on the playground it was where he spent most of his days. And it's also how he originally thought to start his bio, and then thought better of it. Raul M. McCormack is a sophomore at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, majoring in forensic psychology. Although he had to put a hold on his education for a few years, he hopes to use this future degree to help as many people as he can. The second-to-last child of two deaf parents, he hopes to be the first in his family to graduate college and eventually gain a master's degree. He spends most of his free time with his girlfriend, brothers, and friends. Some of the things he likes to do is play video games, go to the movies, listen to music loudly by himself, and watch professional wrestling with an unnerving fervor. Thank you. Let's take a listen to Raoul's piece entitled Papa. Age 5. Papa dropped his food today. He must be really tired to drop his spaghetti and meatballs like that. Who drops spaghetti and meatballs? Now there's sauce and noodles splattered all over his legs and feet. Even some on his face. How is he still sleeping while mommy's cleaning him up? <sighs> mommy's really mad. She's saying things in Spanish I can't understand. Doesn't she remember that Papa can't hear her? <sighs> I help her grab the last meatball that rolled under the bed. What a waste. Age 7. Papa went to the meat market today. And I went with him. I never get to go anywhere. But this time, it was me who got to go instead of my big brother. We have to walk far, but it's okay. I'm with Papa. We walk a few blocks, and then he wants to go to the store where he drinks. I remind him that Mommy said not to, but he said he's only having one. He lifts a clear bottle in one hand, while his other rough mechanic hand spells out the word V-O-D-K-A, his fingers forming each letter in the only language he speaks, American Sign Language. I always get embarrassed when he does it in public, the signing, because people keep looking, staring, reminding me that we're different. He's different. I'm different. The top part of the bottle is just water, he says, and he always pours that part out. We get to the meat market, but Papa looks really tired. He starts to shake, and he falls, still shaking. Daddy, wake up. Why is he shaking? I look up at faces I don't know in a place I don't know. I'm crying a lot and I don't know what to do. I wish mommy was here. A cop comes and asks the meat market man, that's John, right? How does he know my dad? 
age eight. Papa got a job today. I helped. It was a long time that he wasn't working, from the time he moved to Yonkers from the Bronx. He had a hard time finding a job because he can't hear or talk, but I came to help him this time. Once I explained to the guy who owns the store that my father is deaf, but that he wants to work, he said that Perla's driving school had some work he could do. I think Papa wanted to drive, but that didn't happen. Papa loves cars. He's the type of guy who can figure out any problem a car has just by the way it smells. I think it made him really sad that his job was doing other stuff, but I think he was still happy to have a job. They showed us a backyard covered with tall, brown weeds all over. They give him a big red stick with a curved blade at the top and another smaller one with four pointy metal thingies going in different directions. My dad grabbed a big tool and told me to go to the other side of the yard with the small one. It was fun because I just had to stick it into the ground, stomp on it real hard, and then spin it, and all the dirt and plants came right out. It was kind of hot and bright and the sun was cooking my hair, but it was okay because I was helping Papa do his job. They gave us some money when we were done, $45 I think, and we were going home to tell mommy the good news. We passed by a store with WWF toys in the window. My dad saw me looking and went inside to ask how much it was. I really wanted it at first, but then I realized we didn't have enough to get two more for my brothers. I didn't think it was fair to them, so I told Papa I didn't want it, even though I did. It was still a fun day, and my dad was happy. Age 13. My dad was shoveling today. Snow day. Mommy asked us to help, but why would I want to shovel? Plus, my dad didn't even have to. I mean, it was a landlord's job, just like she said. But Papa doesn't listen. He never does. He disappears into the swirling white, probably to get something to drink. It's his routine. Doesn't matter that it's 10 a.m. Or that he's an epileptic. Eventually, I can hear a shovel hit the ground. Almost rhythmically. He's back. I don't know how long afterwards it takes me to notice, but I hear a voice replace the rhythm of shoveling. I peer outside the window and see my neighbor hunched over looking at something behind the concrete barrier in front of the apartment building. Talking at something? Talking to someone. A familiar black shoe shows me its soul just above a pair of blue jeans that barely make my view, surrounded by the snow. It's my dad. Fear runs down my spine, hits my heels, and propels me out the door. I forget that it's snowing or that I'm barefooted and in shorts until I'm outside with them. My neighbor's trying to wake my dad. A few onlookers gather to see the man lying in the snow. Part of me wants to yell out, is this a fucking show for you? I just want them to go. Just go! I hear the familiar sirens penetrate the quiet snow day. Why do you keep drinking? Age 18. Papa was happy today. It was Mother's Day and my father went out of his way to get something for my mom. A white mug with Happy Mother's Day stamped across a red heart. A box of chocolates, some pink flowers draped in a pink ribbon. It's cheesy, honestly, but it works. She's happy. They kiss. Ew. But they hold on to each other and my dad mouths, I love you, as they keep their eyes locked on one another. My mother has always been able to read lips, probably due to the lack of a hearing sense. She pays extra close attention to my dad's lips. A smile inches across her own. Papa's eyes are shining, and it looks like he's going to cry. Can you love someone so much that it makes you cry? She wipes his eyes, and they kiss again. Okay, enough, guys. Ever since my dad came back from rehab, it's been good. Mommy and Papa aren't fighting as much, and they both just seem happier. My dad will even watch telenovelas with my mom. He's not even Hispanic. I watch her translate it for him from the closed captions. Spanish to American Sign Language. Skills. That's...
how it is with them. Age 22. My father went to the hospital today. I wasn't around this time, though. The lady who owns the bodega down the street called me at work. She saw him passed out in the middle of the street, reeking of the liquid depression he relishes so much. I leave my job in a rush, four hours earlier than I'm supposed to, just to wait another 40 minutes for the next bus. No car and too broke to call a cab. I find myself standing outside with nothing but the cars flying past and my thoughts. It's the day-to-day -day I've been expecting since I was in high school. Mommy isn't around anymore to ask you not to drink. I honestly never thought it would be her before you. For four years, you did good. We were so proud of you. But how could anyone blame you for picking up a bottle again after she died? Well, maybe I could. June 6, 2010 was the day your life was forever changed, but you couldn't be bothered to see that ours did too? That your kids were hurting too? What the hell is wrong with you, old man? Why do you keep doing this to yourself? To your kids? To me? I can see the bus approach through a watery veil. Wipe my eyes. Deep breath. I'm coming, Papa. Uh, oh my gosh. Oh my god. That's it? No! <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Thank you for that. Yeah, oh. the story is so short, but it's so powerful, mm. especially just the way that you ended it. Leaves me wanting more. I just want to cry right now. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, for yeah, sure. The only way I could yeah. think to end it, so, yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. I mean, first things first, we just cannot move forward after hearing that heartbreaking ending. Can we ask how Papa is today? What happened there at the end of the story? Well, at the end of the story, um, it turned out that he needed to have an open heart surgery. Um, oh. After that, like, he stopped drinking, smoking, all that stuff. But his health has been fluctuating, you know, up and down from then. Um... As of today, he actually um, passed away in February. Oh, so, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. Yeah, so. Oh. A little bit shocker there. <laughs> oh, I had no idea. Yeah, um, he actually was diagnosed with cancer um, during the fall semester. And, Dude. yeah. So. Wow. Mm -hmm. wow. Well, we're sorry for your loss, and we're really glad that the story um, is is around. It's getting <laughs> getting all teary. Um <laughs> That it's going to, you know, pee out there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, when I wrote the story, it wasn't like anything with that in mind, but then it just turned out that way. I mean, when we had the, um, what was it, when we were actually doing the stories and presenting it in class, that's actually the day I found out that he had cancer. Mm. So listening to everybody responding to the story and honestly, kindly about my dad, that was like, it was hard, but at the same time, it was like, I kind of needed to hear that at the time. So, oh. yeah. Yeah. On that note, this story is structured around you um, intaking the lives of your parents and particularly your father. Um, is deafness something that they had throughout raising you uh, as a hearing child? And you being part of the hearing world automatically while being raised by two people who are not, where did your identity lie? All right, that's a lot of questions. Um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> for um, like me when parents, from what I can remember, they've been deaf from... As long as I could remember. I think my mom lost her hearing at seven and my dad lost it pretty much since birth. Mm -hmm. So it was like just that was normal for me, you know, having deaf parents talking with my hands and stuff like that. And I think that's where my identity lied, even though I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. It wasn't until I did a research paper with Professor Murtazzo yeah, where um, I actually found out what the word CODA meant, which is children um, of deaf parents or adults. Mm -hmm. And that's when it, I realized that 
there's a lack of identity with kids like that because mm. they don't have, say, a cultural background or any sort of musical influence or anything like that. Mm. Things that are, you know, heavily tied into ethnicity, culture, all that stuff. Right. So it was kind of like a blank slate when it came to those. So pretty much whatever I was around is what I picked up on. So this, like, my actual background is, like, Puerto Rican and black, but I have no actual influences of that because right. those influences weren't around. Mm. So it was just whatever I was around. So turns out TV was mm. a big influence there and stuff yeah. like that. So, mm. But that's really the only thing I identify with. Um, as for the deaf culture, it's actually kind of difficult with that. I talked about that in my paper too, but mm. there's like a disconnect with deaf culture and children of deaf, of deaf people because they don't see mm. that you have that understanding that they do. So there's like, you're part of it, but not part of it. Right. It, it's a very interesting dynamic, actually. So Yeah. Did I answer all those questions? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, 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 read the, I read the paper recently. And um, if you don't know, it was actually mentioned in the intro. What, what was the award that it won? Um, from what I remember, I think it was Best 101 Research Project. English 101 <laughs> Research Project, yeah. Yeah, wow. awesome. Well, congrats for that. Yeah. It's it's definitely with with reason. Like it's a really really good paper, mm-hmm. and um, especially as someone like I'm I'm hearing, so I don't know this kind of thing, and I'm also not close to people who are deaf. So this kind of thing is like learning what created your identity mm-hmm. and the cr- identity of I'm sure a ton of other children um, is also really interesting. So thank you for that as well. It really gives. Um, so much more insight yeah i mean it wasn't really my original ideas i think it was because professor rojas was pushing us to do something different Mm -hmm. and i was like i don't remember anyone ever actually talking about this so i Mm, chose that so yeah and And that's why it's important right yeah so uh, i'm kind of curious uh and again thank you for for sharing these experiences but i'm always curious to hear about your own healing process and specifically how writing this has impacted that has it been healing or has it given you a different um um, I guess purpose. Looking back, when I originally wrote the paper, it wasn't on some, you know, I wanted people to see how good my dad was or anything. Mm-hmm. It was really, I actually kind of struggled to write certain parts of it. Um, even with meetings with the professor, mm-hmm. I was having a hard time finding good moments, at least with my dad and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't until after I heard the people's responses to the paper that I was like, okay, so maybe, like, I wasn't seeing it that way. Maybe mm-hmm. I was just looking at all the dark, darker things in there. Yeah. And to see that so many people pulled out a lot of positivity out of it i think that helped me a lot to realize Mm -hmm. that maybe it wasn't as bad as i thought it was so Mm. as for like healing wise um i think i'm just happy that i have it now you know considering what happened with my dad now yeah and yeah yeah, i I think it's just good to have that experience because i was honestly the first time i ever wrote about my dad for anything so yeah Mm. yeah talking more about that there was this moment in the story that frankly just made me so upset and it's when your dad was trying to acquire a job and he was trying to, and he was hoping actually to be able to drive and make deliveries, but instead they put him to hard labor and with his child nonetheless. And at the end, like I remember in it, you're so excited because you're a kid and it's like, oh my God, $45. But I look at it and I'm like, $45 for hard labor? So there's also an instance where your, your dad is signing to you on the street and the people on the street stare. Like, what do these instances, few of many, I'm sure, say about society at large and its treatment of people with disabilities? I think, you, like, nowadays people are a little bit more accepting, but especially back then people would, like, gawk. And, like, they would look mm-hmm. at you like, you know, what is that? It's actually funny because 
the other day I saw something on Instagram where they were mocking these two people arguing in sign language. Mm-hmm. And I see the comments and they're like, oh, they sound like dogs arguing, this, that, whatever. And I'm, I'm reading this and I'm like, I understand like where that idea is coming from. But at the same time, it's like, that's like just totally inconsiderate of where those people come from. And like, it's like you want to respond, but I'm like those type of people who are even on that type of mindset, they were not going to listen to that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually just, I feel like people need to talk about it more. So that mm-hmm. way it's not something that's so, so like eye-opening to see, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to like seeing someone who's walking outside who's blind. Mm-hmm. You know he's blind. People see it. Um, but people don't really talk about deaf people. Their problems is there's more like a... Right. They're more like looked mm-hmm. at something else. Yeah. It's in some ways like a very literal, like silent disability. Mm-hmm. Like people can see someone and not necessarily yeah. s- realize. And it's I think that's what people who aren't used to dealing with anyone who's disabled or dealing with anyone who goes about the world differently than them is that when you can't like see it immediately it's like okay but i thought i put you in this box why are you in another Mm -hmm. box Mm -hmm. and that's what's so what's so strange about it is like our need to categorize is Mm -hmm. so heavy Mm -hmm. i think nowadays it's different because we're we're so aware of what people's backgrounds are so i think we're getting there to a point like I think mm-hmm. there was two movies recently that came out that were about deaf community mm-hmm. and we're starting to see those changes already. Like we're seeing captions on videos that wouldn't have had video, have captions right. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, even at award shows, they're, they're starting to have interpreters and all these mm-hmm. other things. They're being more mm-hmm. aware of that actual background. But I think, you know, we still have more to do for that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's what we've been talking about here on this podcast. Um, maybe by the time this episode is up, that will be kind of done. But we realized that we're really inaccessible and that Mm -hmm. we are a purely auditory podcast Mm -hmm. um we're in in the process of getting everything closed captions but currently on our youtube we have some of the videos with stories and interviews that are closed captions because Mm -hmm. you know in a world where there's all sorts of different people like we should be taking those measures Mm -hmm. as well yeah that's that's awesome actually if if me being here talking about any of this stuff is some sort of help to like push that along that's that's awesome. That's all I can yeah. really ask for. So. It definitely is. Yeah. Yes. for yeah. me. Yeah, right. for sure. Yeah, I think that's great. And I really like the fact that your story goes into employment for individuals living with mm. disabilities, yes. right? It's not just, hey, we just need closed captioning. We need this. We need that. Because mm-hmm. we definitely need all of those things, right? We need to make our world much more accessible. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, how do we center the voices of individuals mm. living with these disabilities mm. and actually listen? Yeah, yeah that's, that's hard to do. I remember... Um, my mother was telling me a story about she was trying to get a job. You know, she was young and she wanted to get a job as a secretary. Mm-hmm. But simply put, because she couldn't hear, right. that wasn't an option for her. Mm-hmm. She could type. She wasn't. She was very intelligent, you know, despite yeah. whatever. That's one thing that they don't talk about, that they teach people who um, have hearing problems. They teach them as if they're slow. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, my mother didn't have that. She, like I said, she lost her hearing later. So she actually was able to go to actual school and actually develop her mind and everything so she was incredibly smart but she couldn't get a even a basic job that most anybody could do so that's definitely something that people need to look into yeah i think that's what angered me so much in your story is like your dad could drive he could make those deliveries and and do that job but because he had something that people consider different Mm -hmm. he wasn't allowed to do that and said he was made to do hard labor Mm -hmm. which is that that says a lot about mm-hmm. our value in in people. 
mm-hmm. as a thing. Especially because, yes, we can have all these like closed captions and stuff for entertainment and, mm-hmm. and that'll make a difference. But when you mess with someone's money and ability to live and ability to to have a family and sustain that family, that's where the real problem lies. Because we're in a capitalistic society. I don't know. I could go forever. <laughs> but um, with that... Thank you for coming on this podcast. Thank, Thank you, you for having so me. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for t- telling this this story. Um, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. This story is by Kayla Frenger. Kayla was born and raised on Long Island. She loves reading, driving to the beach, and spending time with her family. Kayla is currently in her second semester at John Jay and wants to be able to help victims of abuse. Kayla is goofy, loving, and has too much energy sometimes. Kayla never thought she'd be able to move on from her past, but John Jay, specifically her life stories class, helped her do that. A quick warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you, Selena. Let's take a listen to Kayla's piece entitled He. He looks at you and you feel at home. You feel like you've been lost, and finally he's here to help guide you through life. Your aunt walks in the house and kisses him hello. Your parents aren't together anymore. They haven't been together since you were two. You like to come here when the look on your mother's face starts to look like it's going to sink into the floor. You are eight years old, and you feel safe here. You feel like you've escaped the chaos of your own home. This feeling is warm, calm, and safe. Nothing like the home you return to every night and find any excuse to leave every morning. He looks at you, and your face lights up in joy. When he comes around, he makes everyone that happy. He's always laughing. His smile is embedded in your mind due to how contagious it was. You love when he calls you the nickname he gave you. He calls you Rosebud because your middle name is Rose, and he says you're as beautiful as a rose. When he comes over, it feels like you finally have a dad. He makes all the pain of your dad leaving go away. As you run to kiss him hello, you see him slip money to your mother, his sister-in-law, making her face light up. You haven't seen her smile in a while, but when he's around, all her stress disappears. He gives you a present. It's the pair of shoes you've been begging for. You immediately put them on. With every step you take, a different burst of color comes from the bottom of the shoe. You look back up at him with an amazed look on your face. You know in your heart no man will ever treat you like he does. He looks at you from across the court. In his eyes, you could see the pride he feels from watching you play. As you're dribbling down the court, you think about how happy him being here makes you. Your dad can't come to your games anymore. Ever since he got a DWI, he hasn't been able to come around. If you want to even see your dad, you have to ask your mom to drive you to him but you feel the pain you see in her eyes when she realizes she'll have to see him and his new boyfriend. After being married for 13 years, your dad just decided he was gay. As if it's okay to just wake up one day and say, okay, sweetie, I like men now, even though I have three kids with you. You know how terrible it would be to ask her to drive you to him? She already doesn't want to be alive. She told you the only reason she's still alive is because she has to take care of you as if it's an inconvenience that she can't kill herself. Seeing him happy with another man, when he used to be the only person that made her happy, would crush her more than he already did. He looks at you with that bright smile on his face, like he knows he's going to make you happy with whatever he's going to say. 
You just started middle school and have no friends, leaving you with no plans on the weekends. He asks you to stay over his house. You say, of course. When you get there, you ask where your aunt is, where your cousins are. And he says, they're away for the weekend. You and he stay up all night watching movies and talking about your problems at home. You feel like you can finally trust somebody. He looks at you as you're watching The Lion King with his little girls. In some ways, you're jealous of them. You imagine, if he was your real dad, how different your life would be. Although you're jealous, you love these girls more than anything. They look up to you. They ask in anticipation when's the next time you're coming over every time you leave. When you leave them, you feel that same childish anticipation to see them again. Your aunt loves when you come around because it gives the girl somebody to hang out with while she cleans the house. You love coming to his house. It feels like the family you wish you had. He looks at you with pity in his eyes when you finally break down. You've been trying to keep it in because you know if your mom knows how much you're hurting, it'll break her even more than she already is. You know she doesn't want you to see how fragile she is. You pretend you don't see the tears in her eyes when she quickly wipes them away. She puts on a brave face when she sees your father. She can't let you see her break, but you see it in her eyes every time. You see the difference in how she looks at him and how she looks at your father. He holds you in his arms as years of your own pain come flooding out of you. Even though you're hurt, you know he's here for you, and that's what keeps you sane. He looks at you as he throws a football to your brother and his son Stephen while you're braiding his daughter Emma and Ava's hair. You see the happiness in your brother's face when he comes around. You know he feels like he finally has a dad. Your dad was never into sports. He was always into cooking and Broadway. You sit there and wonder how nobody figured out your dad was gay before he came out. You laugh to yourself, even though you know it's not funny to joke about, but it kind of is. It's okay to joke about because you know everyone is happy. You know everything will be okay because he is here now for you and your family. Who needs your dad? All your dad's ever done is hurt everyone around you. Even your uncle tells you your dad's a bad man, so it has to be true. He says your dad hurt your mom and didn't think about the effect it would have on you at all. Why even try to have a relationship with him? You know he's right. He has to be. A man that makes everyone this happy must recognize when another man makes everybody miserable. He looks at you with bloodshot eyes, and you're wondering what's wrong. You're at his house after a family party helping him clean up. His speech is slurred, and his stance is unbalanced. You smell the alcohol on his breath as he reaches and grabs your butt. You feel germs growing under your skin in the places his hands just were. It doesn't hurt, but you know it's wrong. You feel the pain in your heart more than on your body, though. He shouldn't touch you there. You think about screaming, but you stay quiet. You convince yourself it was just a mistake. But then he grabs your boobs, and you freeze. You want to crawl in a hole and die. But you stay completely frozen. You wonder if you should tell anyone. But you stay silent. He looks at you from across the room after your phone goes off. You don't want to pick it up. You know what it is. You're at his house for another football Sunday because that's where your brother wants to go. You want to go home because you have to present your 8th grade project tomorrow and need rest. For the past couple of weeks, he's been texting you inappropriate things. Tonight, it was a simple, why don't you come stand over by me? I want you closer. You have proof now. You can show anyone this and they will know you're telling the truth. But instead, you delete them and pretend you never saw them. You look at him and you see the anger in his face when you don't respond. 
You see the beer bottle in his hand, and you know soon he'll be drunk enough to walk over here and grab you. You tell your mom you don't feel good, and you want to leave, but she says you have to stay until we eat dessert. You know what's going to happen, and you feel your heart beating out of your chest in fear. You think about telling your mom. You should tell her, right? But then you remember how much it hurt when dad left, and you can't see her in that much pain again, so you stay quiet. She can't handle losing her brother-in-law, who she's closer to than her own sister. He looks at you like he deserves you. He owns you. All those years of making you happy as a child allowed him to give himself a little bit of happiness, right? You think that's it. This is the day you're going to tell everyone. His wife, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, you have to tell. Yet you say nothing. You think of the pain you'll cause your cousins. How you're going to make them grow up without a father just like you did. Your aunt that you love and look up to is going to hate you and think it's your fault that you provoked him. Your brother is going to lose it when he realizes what type of man his replacement father really is. Your mother is going to shatter when she finds out that the man that helps your family in every way is destroying you. You want to protect him, because although he's slowly killing you, there was once a time he gave you a purpose to live. He looks at you as you walk down the steps to get away from him. You take Steven into the basement to play Call of Duty. You know he won't touch you in front of his kids. After you and Steven set up the game and start playing, he walks down the stairs. You feel the tension of him wanting to touch you, but resisting. Then he sits down and starts playing the game with you guys. An hour goes by and you realize how much you missed this version of him. Maybe he won't do it anymore. Maybe he realized what he's doing is wrong. You find yourself enjoying the time you spend with him, and you know you shouldn't. You tell yourself you can't love him no matter how hard it is to hate him. He looks at you, but now you start looking back in disgust. In response, he scoffs. It's not like I take you in a room and lock the door behind me. As if that justifies the years of groping and the sexual text messages he sends you in the middle of the night that you immediately delete in fear of your brother finding them and killing him. You don't know why you're protecting him. All you know is you're trapped and you can't get out. He looks at you while you're trembling in the hot tub. You're sitting across from him after your brother and his friends just went inside your house. Your aunt and the kids went to the Great Wolf Lodge this weekend, so he keeps coming over here out of boredom. You went to get out of the hot tub with your brother, but then he told you to stay because he has to tell you a very important story. You see him looking at you while he's telling the story. He's jerking off to you in the hot tub. You feel stupid, like you should have known this would happen. You should have told somebody, but you didn't know, and now it's too late. If you told somebody, this would have never happened. His breathing is getting heavier and you sit there, screaming in silence. He's not touching you at all, but you physically feel your heart explode in your chest. There's a fear of him coming any closer. The walls are closing in on you, and now you can't breathe. You can't tell if it's the anxiety or the heat of the hot tub making you feel like you're going to explode. You run out of the hot tub, and when he drunkenly follows a couple of minutes later, you pretend like nothing happened while you stand silently next to your brother. He looks at you in your dreams. You don't see him in person anymore, but you see him everywhere. He haunts you. The idea of somebody taking pieces of you away from yourself haunts you. He owned you, and you will never be a slave to him again, yet you're still a slave to your own thoughts and memories. 
You tell your mom that you're busy all the days you're supposed to see him and you pray she doesn't notice the pattern. You decide to go to therapy and tell somebody because holding it in is making you go crazy. He looks at you as you're telling your therapist what happened. You feel yourself shaking and she says you don't have to keep going, but you do. You feel the words flooding out of your mouth because finally somebody will listen. Finally, you're not scared of somebody's reaction. This is her job and she has to listen. Then when you finally finish your story, she tells you by law you have to tell your mom and you feel your heart fall into your stomach and shatter into a million pieces. This will ruin those kids' lives. He looks at you through the picture you're staring at. Today is the day you're going to ruin your mom all over again. You can't stop staring at the man that gave you everything then took it all away. You tell your mom, and she breaks down. She says she should have known. She thinks it's her fault. This is exactly what you didn't want. She calls your dad immediately. He takes the first train over to your house and gets there as soon as he can. Your mom left because she couldn't stay in the house. And then your dad comes in. You finally break down. You can't hold it in anymore. You can't keep protecting everyone else. He looks at you with an understanding in his eyes. He tells you that his uncle did the same thing to him. And he holds you in his arms as years of your own pain come flooding out of you. He looks at you as you're reliving your worst nightmare again. Only this time you're saying it to a detective. As you're being asked a million questions about what happened to you, you look on the wall and see the letters SVU. You laugh to yourself because you think this is nothing like the television show. Then he asks, do you want to press charges? You say no, as if the question offended you. The detectives try to persuade you to press charges, but you can't. The idea of the kids viewing their dad as a monster like you once viewed your own, or worse, them seeing him get taken away in a cop car, not knowing why, was too much to bear. You couldn't hurt your aunt and cousins like that. She'll leave him when she finds out what he did to me anyways, won't she? He looks at you in the pictures your aunt posts on Instagram. She is still with him. You will never understand why. One of the main things your therapist kept telling you was that if you told everyone, you would be helping his family. You loved your aunt and your cousins more than anything. So that is what gave you the courage to tell people. Now you feel betrayed. Your aunt chose him, or you guess herself over you. She didn't want to be known as a woman that was married to that guy. In an attempt to save her reputation, she tried to hide it from the family. Yet when the family found out, she still stayed. You think it has to be for the money. She didn't want to have to struggle to be a single parent, so she chose him. Part of you hates her, but part of you isn't sure how you would respond either. Nobody understands. Your brother tries to make excuses for him by asking you what you were doing that made him do that, and makes comments like, well, he didn't touch you down there, right? And the only person that gets it is your dad. He knows exactly what you've been through and how you feel, and you thank God every night that he's in your life. He looks at you in your dreams still. You wonder if you'll ever be able to love somebody. When you think about giving yourself to another person, it scares you. You've been there before, and it broke you. You thought you found a safe place, but all those people betrayed you. Your aunt knows what happened and stayed. You only see your cousins at family occasions that you have to make sure he won't be at. 
When you see them, they ask, why don't you come over anymore? You feel an ache in your heart at the idea of them thinking you don't want to see them because all you want is to be with them again. These kids you would give up anything for now think you want nothing to do with them. You long to be with them, but you can't. You have to protect yourself from him. How will you ever trust again when the people you love the most left you here in pain? You cry because all you ever wanted was love. And now you know you might never be able to have it because you fear it. How will you ever love another person if you can't get him and the pain he caused out of your mind? He looks at you as you punch the wall next to your bed. Everyone left the house, so you allow yourself to break down in solitude. This time you're not crying. You're screaming. You're hitting things and yelling at God, yelling at your aunt, your mom, your brother, your sister, everyone. The pain isn't just from him. He wasn't the only guilty one. All the people in your family betrayed you. Your mom cared more about her own pain than yours. Your brother and sister defended him in any way they could. They thought he could do no wrong. Your mother's other sisters tell your aunt she's just being dramatic when your aunt gets upset about you. You think, yeah, thanks for comforting her as if she needs it more than me. As if you like what happened. As if you wanted all of this and you enjoyed the attention. He took advantage of you because you felt lost and now you're being punished. The best part of all of this is that your aunt stayed with the piece of shit. You try to come up with excuses for her, but you can't. What if he does it to one of the girls? How will you live with yourself? You hit the wall again, and you look down at your hand and it's swollen. You sink into the ground and hug yourself while you're screaming and crying, wondering why nobody will save you. He looks at you as you throw away all the shirts he gave you. You have to let go. You feel like you're mourning a man that's still breathing. The anger you have towards everyone and everything isn't healthy. You know you will never move on if you don't let go. You have to act like he's dead because if you think the old him is still there, you'll go back. You'll try and fix the relationship and it'll end up with him doing something worse than what he already did. You know yourself, so you can't let this happen. You can't think about how he is or what he's up to because it will only cause you pain. You have to know that the old him was never real. It was all an act. He just knew that acting that way would make you trust him. He knew it would make it harder for you to leave. You throw the clothes in the garbage and walk away with tears in your eyes. Because you know, you'll never see the old him again. He looks at you, but it's not him. It's a boy. Yet in all the men you care about, you see him. You see his bad intentions through their innocent eyes. Other boys have looked at you since him, but they felt too much like him. Their stares lasted too long in areas where his hands groped you for too long. But then, when this one boy looks at you, you feel warm, calm, and safe. That scares you more than anything, because you felt this before. Yet somehow this seems different. You know in your heart this boy will never treat you the way he did. Or look at you with the same intentions he had in his eyes. But can you do this? Can you trust someone? Yes. Yes, you can. This is what you worked for. This is what you deserve. Every fight for independence from your uncle, family, and your own mind was fighting for this. You were fighting for the ability to feel safe and trust again. It was this moment that made you realize that 
he will never look at you again. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. Thanks for joining us tonight, Kayla, and for sharing your story with us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and before we get into the questions, we just wanted our listeners to know that if you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, there are resources available to you, many of which can be anonymous. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached at 800-799-7233 and 800-942-6908 for Spanish speakers. This is a 24-7 hotline that provides crisis intervention in both English and Spanish and referrals to local services and shelters for victims of partner or spousal abuse. You can also contact the Stance Against Domestic Violence Crisis Hotline at 888-215-5555. And that resource also goes to like anyone that um, within any sort of family structure um, that has been harmed. Um, so yeah, thank you, thank you for joining us today. Oh, yeah, for sure. um, and like getting right into it, this piece is written in a way that is so captivating, which is very hard. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, thank you. Yeah, like it it makes listeners feel like they are definitely you in that moment. And I know personally, <laughs> um, I had a very difficult time in just getting through it. And yeah. because I felt so watched mm-hmm. and like I can just like imagine what it was like to be in that. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially at the age that it yeah, was. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the the entire like roller coaster of emotions as well from like th- this guy was like a savior in such a way. Mm-hmm. And then all of this happened. And then, yeah, it, it was just like. Um, and you start the majority of it, of if not all of the paragraphs, with he watches you when blank, um, and even when he's not around. So why the choice to begin things in this manner throughout? Well, like when I was deciding to write it, I um, well, like I knew I had to write about the good times too, mm-hmm. and like it's weird when I was thinking about all the good times, like the one thing that I would think about was like his eyes. Like I would always think about like, like I feel like eyes are so like specific to a person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you always notice them. Like you can tell if they're happy or if they're sad mm-hmm. or like, so like, I don't know. Like when I was thinking about it, I was just like, that's like the one thing I would remember. Like, like what look he had in his eyes. Like if he mm-hmm. was like coming over, like smiling, happy, like mm-hmm. in one part I talk about like his smile because like, there was just like like you know someone's like smile like their eyes go up like I don't know I just always thought about like his eyes and whatever yeah. when I was looking back at it that mm-hmm. was the one thing I remembered yeah yeah no the eyes are the windows of the soul right mm-hmm. yeah yeah in a, in a good way or a bad yeah. way or in a bad way sometimes too um so this might be a little personal but mm-hmm. if it's okay with you can we ask about how your family is around this topic now it was a horrible thing that happened to you because of this man. But it seems that the most heartbreaking part was the reaction from the family or the lack of reaction from the family, the lack of the support and the inability to side with you because saving face was more important. Has that changed? No, <laughs> like my family is very like, I don't know, like my mom, like she understands, my dad understands, but my brother and sister are very weird about it right. because in their situation also, they viewed him the same way I did. Yeah. So I understand how it's hard for them right. to do that. But And like even after it, that stuff happened to me, it was hard for me to be yeah. like, this mm-hmm. is bad because like you just are in a situation where that person means so much mm-hmm. to you. Right. So like 
I understand, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't want to understand because I want to yeah. be mad at you. No. Yeah, yeah, no, so like, sure. um, my aunt, I don't, I don't know. I don't get her, but she's still like that. Um, yeah, they're basically the same, but I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Like I, like I could press charges, but I wouldn't want to do that to them. Right. So yeah. I wouldn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so, it's, uh, it's such a bad position to be in. Yeah. yeah. There's like, no winning. There's no mm-hmm. no way. That's like I explained it to my mom. I'm like, like, no matter what I do, there's no like like there's no like good way to get out of the situation. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I just like I usually just don't really go over there. Like I don't go like to family things. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, Where are you? I'm like, oh, working, I'm busy. I'm busy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like <laughs> But like it's weird. Like my other aunts know too, and they all just are like weird about it mm. but also like it's one of those things where it's like like m- looking at it through my point of view i'm like this is how people should react mm-hmm. but then like people aren't going to react that way because of the circumstances mm-hmm. right like i watched this i was watching something and it said like it was like from 13 reasons why they did a thing mm-hmm. and it was saying how like sometimes like the reaction you get from sexual assault makes you more upset than the actual sexual assault mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I 100% agree with that because yeah. obviously what happened was terrible, but like if if it was like, if people reacted in a different way, it would have been easier for me to handle it. Right. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. Yeah. yeah. Because then you would have at least had, you would have at least had comfort. Yeah. Like I, some support. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just so interesting how in that kind of like family structure, and it kind of goes back to like, okay family especially but at the same time it's like like recently we had uh, a story on the podcast with someone who was just like really in love with this guy and he turned out to be like a rapist and she still had so much trouble like getting past that Mm -hmm. she was like okay i know that i shouldn't love him but i really love him Mm -hmm. and so that whole it's just interesting that how in our society, like the excuses that we're able to make mm-hmm. because yeah. we really don't want to think about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really glad that we have this story because we kind of have to think about it and we have to analyze ourselves. Mm-hmm. I know definitely like there's, there's always going to be times because stuff like sexual assault is so common in our culture that it's mm-hmm. going to take um, a lot of active thinking in yes. this way to also undo how we react to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah 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 that's the worst part too like, when it's like family members and mm-hmm. stuff but it's just so nice when you get a it not nice per se but like it's 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 refreshing to be able to see stories come out like like mm-hmm. that you're able to have that support yeah. even if it's not from your family sometimes mm-hmm. where you could share your story and let other people know that it's like you're not alone in this this yeah. is this is my example of it this is what i had to go through you didn't have to do this alone and you Mm -hmm. don't have to do this alone Mm -hmm. which is why it's so important that we gave those little hotlines and stuff as well but as well and especially i'd say for sharing a story yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah like usually when we have people it's something that's just like on a separate note a little bit surprising but also i'm that really grateful for is that you're choosing to put your name like to the story Mm -hmm. that you're like no my name is kayla and this is a thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not anonymous, quote unquote. I'm yep. not um, unknown person B mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. something like that. You're just like, okay, yeah. this yeah. is like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It felt weird to not put my name. I don't know. Like, it just felt like bizarre. Like, I was like, no, like, yeah. this is me. I don't yeah. want to have to, like, 
be like, right. oh, some random person wrote this. Like, yeah. I mean, like people are going to see my name and be like, I don't know who that is. But mm-hmm. like, I know that my name is there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's important mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and going forward, uh, going into like the other members of your family that aren't as <laughs> uh, dismissive. Um, there's this bittersweet feeling of bonding with your dad towards the end, mm-hmm. um, who at the beginning of the story, we feel almost negatively towards mm-hmm. uh, for the effect that his leaving had on you and on your family. Um, and especially like your mom in particular, who throughout this, it's like you're protecting her, like mm-hmm. like her especially. It's like we you, we definitely feel that the focus is is on helping your mom mm-hmm. as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you're... So your dad shares with you that he too was also abused by an uncle. Um, have you and your dad gotten a chance to talk further about all this, to unpack all of this? And also, uh, where is your healing process at now? Um, well, my dad, I don't know. He doesn't really like like to talk about it, so I don't mm-hmm. bring it up to him. Like mm-hmm. He told me it, and then we just never talked about it because oh. I don't want to. Like, I know, like, him, like, he probably doesn't want to think about it. So, it's okay. Mm-hmm. If he wants to talk about it, he can. I just mm-hmm. don't think he wants to. Yeah. And, um, but with him, like, it was really nice. Like, I real like, I felt like part of that, like, part of the thing that gets lost in, like, the me writing that is that, like, growing up when I was little, like, I loved my dad. Like, mm-hmm. I was obsessed with him. And then, like when I realized what happened and the effect it had on my family, Mm -hmm. then I was like, wow, this is like weird. It's like, and then I started to not like him. Mm -hmm. And then all this stuff happened. And I was like, I thought this one guy was great and he's not. Mm -hmm. And like, just because you did one thing wrong, doesn't mean you're not great. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like I wrote this one line thinking, saying like, I was like, yeah, you can just decide that you want to be gay. Mm. And, like, obviously that's what I thought then. Like, now I know, like, it wasn't that. Mm -hmm. But it's that, like, I feel like he felt a lot of pressure from, like, when he was growing up, like, it wasn't okay. Yeah, definitely So he had to do this. And he thought, like, oh, if I have a family, maybe I'll be happy. And he realized, like, he won't. So it's okay that that happened. Like, I understand. Mm -hmm. It's just that then... When you see someone that you care about and you live with and yeah. you have to see all this, you're like, why did this person do this? Exactly. You know, like yeah. it's but growing up, I see like I understand it. Mm-hmm. I get it more. Yeah. I'm glad you left that part in because Me then too. we really get to like see your like. Yeah. Not everyone is 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 elated that their father of so many mm-hmm. years has like come out, yeah. you know, so I'm yeah. really glad that you were like honest, like with yeah. the listener. Like, I didn't want to I didn't want to like lie and be like. Yeah. Just like our society is very like hard, okay, like if yeah. you're not okay with this, then like that's not okay. And it's like mm-hmm. I'm totally okay with people being gay, but in that circumstance, right. I was upset, <laughs> yeah, reasonably no, sure. so. Yeah. yeah. So like for, for like a good yeah, reason. but I feel like I like didn't want to leave it out right. because like that's just not real. I'm right. That's yeah. not real to mm-hmm. think that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, especially when things like that happens, like just like out of nowhere. Yeah, it just like it gets so like so overwhelming. So it's like good to see that like. You're not always going to be the best person, especially mm-hmm. when you're upset like that. And there's yeah. like nothing wrong with that. You mm-hmm. know? So like it was good to see that happen. Yeah. So with that, Kayla, what would you like your listeners to take away from your story? Um, I don't know. I think that I, the main thing is that like. You wouldn't think that this is what I'd want, but I feel like people need to just like 
I I don't know how to describe it. Like I feel like you can't just judge like with the de- my dad's situation. Like you can't judge person based on one thing they did. Mm-hmm. But then also in the same instance, if you're in a situation that you need to get out of, sometimes you can judge a person yeah. on one thing they right. did. Like, yeah. like no, it's it like depends. yeah, like you can't like. Totally. Like, if a person made a mistake and you can tell, like, they understand they were wrong Mm -hmm. and that they didn't have intentions of hurting you, Mm -hmm. that's okay. If you're in a situation where somebody is abusing you constantly and you confront them, they know what they're doing and they ignore it, that's not a mistake. They're doing it for a reason. Mm -hmm. And a big thing that I want people to, like, realize is that, like, it's really hard to get out of these situations, especially when it's somebody that you're really close to, Mm -hmm. because part of you doesn't want to. Like, part of you is, like, like, it's hard to say because it's, like, sounds weird, but, like, part of you is, like, this person's such an important part of my life. Like, now, like, if I tell this to everybody, I'm not going to see them anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, but at the same time, it's, like, that's not, like, you shouldn't have to be in that situation. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody should have to be in that situation. Mm-hmm. So you have to get yourself out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love this. Okay. Yes. Thank you for that, Kayla. Yeah. No problem. And thank you so much for your story and your insightful interview. Yes. No problem. Thank you, guys. Thank you. This last piece is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous. Anonymous loves doing all the things with all the people, but likes traveling above all else. She subsists on coffee, cheese, and hot sauce, and never says no to an adventure. She's the kind of friend who will text message you a gif at 12.45am of Pennywise the Clown from it waving, saying, see you in your dreams. As a firm believer that anything is possible, she plans to spend her whole life trying, failing, and persisting until she gets it right. Life is not a dress rehearsal. A warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you, Karen. Let's take a listen to Anonymous's piece entitled, This is Our Dance. Age 21, The White Castle. We're in White Castle. I stare blankly across the table at my mom, trying to wrap my head around what she just said. My hand freezes halfway to my mouth as the grease from the slider drips slowly onto my wrist. I think she just told me she's a lesbian. Over White Castle. Did she just say that she's met a woman who's moving into our home? I open my mouth to reply, but no words come out. My mom is a lesbian, and a woman is moving in. Is this a comedy sketch? Shouldn't there be a punchline about a U-Haul coming up next? My brain fumbles with the words, running through the same process it does when I accidentally flip to a Spanish channel on television and can't immediately grasp that what I'm hearing is a different language. Just, what? I've always been under the impression that you don't just become a lesbian. I'm pretty sure you're born that way, which means mom has lied to me the last 21 years? After everything we've been through? The constant reliance on me to get through the mood swings, the phone calls, the emails, the weekend trips home when she's depressed helping her remodel or repaint the house when she's too manic to settle down? In all of that, she's never bothered to mention this? What about my father or Roger, her con artist ex-husband? I don't care that she's dating a woman. I'm a theater major for Christ's sake. Most people I know are gay. Love who you want to love. I don't care. But why now? And why today? And why White Castle? Jesus, does Papa know? 
Does Papa know? I ask her, finally stringing together a sentence. No. She doesn't want me telling him or anyone. Great. So now she's making me a liar, too. Well, at least she didn't tell her father before she told me. The neon lights blare overhead and the signature scent of White Castle onions perfumes the air. Its putrid sweetness resembles the taste suddenly creeping up in the back of my throat. I feel like my whole life has been a lie. Age 12, the kitchen. I want to run, but the weight of my mother tugs down on my 12-year-old body like a sack of potatoes. Her arms are tight around my shoulders, constricting my movement, our bodies heaving together with each of her sobs. I can't breathe. I can't talk. I can't think. I stare at the baby blue wood-paneled walls of our kitchen, dingy and glazed with dog hair. My focus lands on our old-fashioned rotary phone hanging on the wall. I wonder why we still have one of those. God knows I don't like to use it. Who wants to spend 15 minutes just to dial the phone? I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry, my mother weeps, leaning into me. I'm the only thing holding her up in the world. I've never seen mom cry like this before, and I can't stand it. It's not your fault, I tell her over and over. We're going to be okay. I don't know if I believe it. Something is different. She is not okay. How was mom supposed to know that Roger, her second husband, was lying to us? How was she supposed to know he was embezzling from his job? Should she have known he was a criminal before she married him? No. Why would I be mad at her for this? She doesn't need to apologize. So our bank accounts are frozen. Fine. So we're being followed by a private investigator 24-7. Whatever. Mom's actually gotten pretty savvy weaving in and out of traffic trying to lose them on our way to my junior high each morning. Who knew she was secretly the drag race queen of DuPage County? Doesn't matter anyway. They already know where I go to school. Mom just doesn't want other kids to notice we're being followed. She's trying to make life as normal as possible for me. I keep trying to tell her it's eighth grade and these idiots notice nothing beyond their own drama. But she's too embarrassed to believe me. She never wanted this to happen. A low tone ringing in my ears begins to overtake the sound of my mom's sobs as my brain hurries to numb itself to the situation. The detectives, the restraining order, the fact that we've had to change our phone number and all the locks on our house, gotten a new car and mom a new job, all pale in comparison to holding my mother as she cries like this. I smell the barely-touched piles of hamburger helper, sweet and tangy, still sitting on the plates expecting to be eaten. Not so helpful tonight, are you, Mr. Helper? Sorry to all the starving children in Africa, but I'm not hungry anymore. Age 5, the car. The sun shines in through the windows of our black Ford Escort and toasts my legs like Pop-Tarts. My feet, dangling several inches in the air, bounce with the rhythm of the car. Am I ever going to be tall enough for my feet to touch the ground? I don't really care. This is fun. We're going fast, and Mama has the oldies cranked up. My run, 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 run away! We both scream together, singing along with the radio. From the Nestle Quick lunchbox on my lap, I take another bite of my Kentucky Fried Chicken, Chicken Little, my favorite sandwich that Mama gets me when we have to go visit a foster family out in the field. That means when we visit them outside of mom's work. A pretty smart thing for a five-year-old to know. I love these days. Age 17, the shower. The shower thunders at full blast, filling the bathroom with the steam as I sit folded up on the wooden bench, cradling the cordless phone. This is the only amount of privacy I can create within my dormitory suite when mom calls. Four years ago, Mom was diagnosed with type 1 bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder. 
At 17 and in college for less than three months, I've told my mom, please don't kill yourself over the phone more times than I can count from this very bunch. Doesn't she know I'd die without her? In response, she's told me, I wish you had these diseases too. Maybe then you'd understand more times than I can count from her end of the line. She doesn't mean it, I tell myself. She couldn't possibly wish I had diseases that led to suicidal thoughts. Depression's so bad I sometimes can't leave my bed. The mania is so severe I go several nights without sleeping while completely remodeling a room. She wouldn't want me self-mutilating or experiencing auditory hallucinations. She could never want me encountering the type of racing thoughts that would prevent me from completing my schoolwork or hope that I'd experience the risky, impulsive behavior that often puts my safety and our financial well-being in jeopardy. I know she doesn't really wish any of that on me. I know this. Yet, my body seems to disagree. Surges of anxiety race down my spine like lightning each time she says it. Mom has been through a lot, I reason with myself. She was abandoned by her biological mother at two years old, and she remembers it. She lost her adoptive mother, Papa's wife, to lupus when she was 11 years old. The childhood experiences she suffered at the hands of her biological father before he committed suicide were scarring. I know she always has my best interest at heart. She does her best. I shift uncomfortably on the bench, needing to stretch. Mom's just looking for understanding, that's all. I try to understand, but it's very hard to put yourself in the mindset of mental illness when you don't have it. I know it's been hard for her since I've been away at college. It's been hard for me too, but worth it. The moments I spend walking the quad with my new friends, sun on my face, squirrels at my feet, I'm liberated from the confines of home. I know the mountain of answering machine messages from her await me in my dorm room, but outside, I am free. I wish I had siblings. Age 11, the skates. I open my eyes to the sound of Steven Tyler as my clock radio blasts early morning Aerosmith. I can already smell maple syrup coming from downstairs. It's still pitch black outside as I stumble my way towards the kitchen, not at all a morning person at age 11. I find Mom already dressed and preparing a stacks of French toast, my favorite breakfast. On the floor next to my chair, she set my figure skates. I can tell immediately that they're freshly polished, something she wakes up extra early to do on the mornings of every skating competition I have. I've told her over and over that she doesn't need to do this. It's already early enough to wake up as it is. Yet, she does it time and time again. Age 25, the funeral. I stand in front of the open casket somberly, shaking hands and clasping shoulders like a seasoned car salesman. Behind me, a man much too pale and still to be Papa rests in the silk-lined box. Horrifying everyone earlier this morning, I did my best to use my stage makeup skills to make him look like himself again, but was only able to achieve a complexion akin to angry onion. My eyes scan the room. I see Patty, my mother's partner of four years, standing near the front door talking to some relatives. Generally, I find it obnoxious that she talks so much. Today, I'm grateful. Where is Mom? I excuse myself from the receiving line and navigate the room with the ease of a running back. Now 25, the years of theater networking events turns this room into my playing field. I make introductions between people, smile, field questions, lend assurances. Once free, I slip outside and pound my way down the sidewalk to the bar next door. I spot my mother in the back, drink in hand. 
The anger of a lifetime of responsibility threatens to boil over as I hiss in my mother's face. What are you doing, Mom? The priest is looking for you to start the service. He's your father. You need to be there. I grab her hand and yank her off the stool and out the door. I don't care whether she's paid for the drink. I know she's hurting, and I'm hurting too, but I am sick to death of this shit. Age 27, the tattoo. The N train has just emerged out of the tunnel and into the daylight of Queens when mom's name pops up on my Blackberry screen indicating a picture message. I click on the notification. An arm covered in scars that are distinctly hers from years of cutting reveals a new tattoo. Encompassing much of her left forearm, the words, I live, I'm loved, surround the green bipolar disorder awareness ribbon. I would be tempted to believe that this is a hopeful message if I didn't know this tattoo is a telltale sign that a bout of mania is taking hold. Mania leads to spending. Dogs, cars, trucks, widescreen TVs, tattoos. This is number five. Spending leads to debt. Irreversible debt. Recently, we lost the house. Most of my possessions of my 27 years of life are gone. Now mom and Patty live with Patty's mother. A new tattoo. Crap. Age 18, the show. I bend over and slip the tape into the VCR. I really think you're going to like this, I tell mom, snuggling up under the blanket next to her on our couch. I tape the first two episodes. One day shy of my 18th birthday, I'm a little too big for us to be comfortably laying on the same couch, but neither of us complain. Tomorrow we'll have dinner with Papa, but tonight is just for us. The opening bars of Carol King's Where You Lead blast from the TV speakers as the word Gilmore Girls splay across the screen. For two hours, Mom and I sit entangled watching the new show. By the end, we're both smiling. I ask her, see, they're just like us, don't you think? They're mother and daughter, but they're also best friends. Plus, Lorelai named her daughter Lorelai, and you named me after your middle name. They're totally us. They are just like us, Mom happily agrees. We make plans to watch the show together over the phone each week from now on. We really are the Gilmore Girls. Age 28, the bedroom. I watch the door to my bedroom at Patty's mom's house vibrate as my mother pounds on it, screaming obscenities at me from the other side. I'm trembling, but I'm not sorry for what I said tonight. Give me the keys! She screams over and over in between curses. Underneath my twin mattress lay Patty and mom's car keys. A woman blaringly angry, screaming about driving herself into a lake, should not have access to a car. So I stole them. Please stop, Mom. This is for your own good, as well as the others on the road. And for me, your kid. Remember? I flew home from New York today to speak with Mom's doctor as a family. Despite the years of the drugs and the hospitalizations, I never anticipated that the day would come that he would recommend Mom undergo electroconvulsive therapy. The doctor claims that medication is just not working to stabilize mom anymore. He's tried every drug on the market. This is the next step. Electroconvulsive therapy is reserved for only the most severe cases of mental illness that are no longer responding to medication. Not only is the procedure itself a little painful and scary because it induces a small seizure in the brain, but the side effects of it can be extremely destructive. Most patients experience some amount of memory loss, whether it's short-term or long-term, and many report it being permanent. Some people have reported losing whole time periods in their life or events like the birth of their child. 
Some patients have a hard time focusing in on the long term and feel like their normal brain function has been fried. Other patients experience no side effects at all. There's no way to know how mom would respond and whether the benefits outweigh the risk. Each time I think of it, it feels like a direct blow to the stomach. A few minutes ago, as mom and I sat on my bed discussing the options, I expressed quite loudly that I strongly believe Patty gave up all rights to voice an opinion on this family when she chose to spend last summer fucking the male neighbor while mom was sick in the hospital with colon cancer. I, on the other hand, spent the summer in a chair next to mom's bed, wearing the same seven days worth of clothing over and over since I thought I was only coming for a week. No, Patty, you get no say. I meant it when I called you a cunt. Sorry, not sorry that you overheard the conversation. You're always eavesdropping. I position myself over the keys and settle in to watch the Grey's Anatomy musical episode, an event I've been waiting for. I do my best to ignore the banging, and a couple of minutes later, Mom wears herself out and leaves the door alone. Later, I go to look for Mom and find her in bed. I lean in to hug her goodnight, and as she reaches for me, I see that both of her forearms and wrists are covered with raw, fresh cuts. This is not new. Mom has always been a cutter. What did you use? I inquire, numb. This is my life. The kitchen scissors, she replies. I'm sorry. This is our dance. You're going to get an infection, I say, walking out of the room. I love you. This is defeat. I return to my room, take the keys out from under my mattress, and place them on the kitchen table. This is the end. This is always going to be my life. This realization nearly knocks me off my feet. This is how it is. I'm 28 years old, and this is not getting better. It has only gotten worse. There is no escape from this truth. I am empty, deep down to my soul, and bleeding for relief. I have nothing more to give. I do not want to be here. I am falling, and there's no bottom to this pit. I want out. I do not want to live. I lay down on my bed is I realize that I am physically too tired, too exhausted, too spent to kill myself tonight. I am so tired, I can't move. As I drift to sleep, I beg God not to let me wake up again. Please, please, don't wake up. Age 30, the three days. I sit anesthetized on my couch as I hold my cell phone in my ear, listening to Patty tell me bluntly, I'm here at the hospital with your mom. She's taking a bunch of clonopin. They're pumping her stomach. This is the phone call I've been expecting since high school, except she wasn't successful. Thank God. I just talked to her this morning, as I do every single morning. She didn't say anything. I hang up the phone. I should fly home to see her. That's the right thing to do, right? A good daughter would go. A good daughter wouldn't even question it. A good daughter wouldn't care that she's smack in the middle of a week-long, full-day sketch-writing workshop that she paid a lot of money for. A good daughter wouldn't care that for 30 years, she still hasn't mastered the ability to balance her wishes for a life of her own with that of the delicate nature of easing out of the grasps of codependency with her mother. A good daughter would be halfway to the airport by now. I stay. As I walk to bed, the guilt crackles in the air around me like static electricity. Two days later, I call mom on my break during my workshop. She was released from the hospital this morning. 
I struggle when it comes to my feelings on suicide, always. There's one half of me that sees the cowardly, selfish nature, the impact it has on loved ones. But the other half of me, attuned to a lifetime living around mental illness, understands the battle that people in a constant state of anguish face every day in their right to seek peace. When I speak to mom, only the selfish part of me speaks up, the part of me that doesn't want her to leave me. I try to explain to her how much it would kill me if she were gone, how much she means to me, and how much I really wish she wouldn't have done that. She apologizes to me and promises me she won't do it again. I hang up and head back into my workshop feeling 10 pounds lighter, the weight of the last 36 hours finally lifted. That evening, I'm in a bar having a glass of wine with some friends when my phone rings. It's a number I don't recognize, so I excuse myself to take the call in the quiet outside. I listen to Patty on the other end of the line. She tells me that this afternoon, right after Mom and I spoke, Mom overdosed again. The doctors are having a hard time raising her heart rate this time. What kind of doctor would release someone home from a suicide attempt with more clonopin? What kind of mother would promise me she wouldn't do it again and then, minutes later, does it again? What kind of mother does it with me still on the phone? She's awake and wants to talk to me. Mom gets on the phone and tells me, spite penetrating the drug-induced fogginess of her voice, that this is my fault. That if she doesn't have a relationship with me, she doesn't want to live at all. Patty gets on the phone again and echoes Mom's sentiments, telling me I'm selfish and I need to be a better daughter. I hang up on her, confused, stunned, wondering what the hell they're talking about. I have spoken on the phone with my mother nearly every day since I moved out at 17. I've spent my lifetime being a good daughter. I've traveled home whenever she needed. I've fielded phone calls at home, at work, at school, in foreign countries. In foreign countries! At 40 cents a minute! This is not fair, and I'm not taking the blame for this. I'm once again cloaked in the reality that I faced only two years ago on the night of the Grey's Anatomy musical episode. The reality that this is my life, always. Tonight, however, I don't want to take my own life. Tonight, I decided I'm taking my life back. I deserve a chance to live one, too. I love you, Mom, but enough is enough. Age 34, the present. I pause against a stone wall on Central Park South, having just hung up the phone with my mother. It's the first time I've talked with her in a week or so. I called home to tell her that, at 34, I've gone back to school. It went about as well as I expected it to. She didn't ask me too many questions, and most of the phone call was spent in silence. It's probable that she won't remember it later anyway. The years of taking too many psychotropic drugs have destroyed her memory, and her ability to retain new information is crappy at best. It's okay. If I keep reminding her, eventually it'll stick, but I probably won't. It embarrasses her and makes her feel bad when she forgets things, and it makes me feel bad to make her feel bad. It's a lot easier to just keep things to myself. This is our new dance. She's not the mother I used to know, the one I grew up with, who I spoke with on the phone every day for all of those years. She hardly speaks at all anymore. She rarely makes eye contact. The drugs have taken away her ability to stand up straight or walk without shuffling, and she tremors like the San Francisco fault line rests deep somewhere within her body. She's been tested for neurological disorders and Parkinson's disease multiple times, 
but it's just the side effects of the drugs, the doctors say. They could lessen her doses, but then she gets suicidal again. I guess this is the better option. It's interesting because these are the type of side effects we were hoping to avoid when we opted not to go for the electroconvulsive therapy six years ago. Sometimes I think she might have had it without my knowledge, but that sounds silly. This version of mom is, however, manageable. It's the new normal. Now that we're mostly strangers, the previously impenetrable guilt curtain that told me it wasn't okay to be happy if she wasn't happy has finally lifted. For a split second, I can picture us standing in the kitchen of the old house the night she cried about Roger 22 years ago. See, Mom? I told you. It wasn't your fault. It has never been your fault. We are okay. <laughs> what a roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> so many emotions. Wow. That is for sure. Yeah. Such a strong piece. Really quickly, we want to note that for anyone that's affected by a mental illness and specifically bipolar disorder, the author of the story recommends um, looking up the International Bipolar Foundation and also other local resources that could help. Thank oh. you for being here tonight. Oh. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Mm-hmm. Um, while we were reading, I noticed that while the reading of the story that each section or memory with your mom is significantly labeled after the main focus of that section, whether it be the place or the object referred to and your age during that time. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose those certain headings to break up the story? Um, so while I was writing it, it was a way to just kind of keep track of each of the different vignettes because it did bounce around a lot and Mm -hmm. there were a lot of different memories um, that I wanted to make sure there was a balance of rougher memories and happier memories. Um, So it was, I took the most significant part, whether it be um, the setting, which Mm -hmm. was the most visceral to me at the time of the, you know, the sentences to to remind me of um, what was taking place or an object, you know, just what was ever the most important to me about that, Mm -hmm. just to keep track and um, be able to move them around if I needed to within the piece for a better, a better um, setup. So it had a lot to do with the writing process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and within that story, a line that really stuck out to me was, mom's just looking for understanding. That's all. I try to understand, but it's very hard to put yourself in the mindset of mental illness when you don't have it. And we often see stories about those with an illness and rarely about the loved ones involved. And I think this particular quote really highlights this unique experience. Um, The conversation on mental health has changed a lot over the past few years. And with the stigma placed around those who are mentally ill lessened to a degree, I was wondering what are your thoughts and experiences on the stigma of mental health um, in this country, in your life? Um... Okay, so that's that's a difficult question for sure, um, very multifaceted. But I think that in terms of my own experiences, there is still definitely a stigma. And I honestly do think that so much of that comes from people not understanding how to deal with it, you know, mm-hmm. and myself included. Like, I, I don't know what she's going through. I can just see it from my perception. And I think worldwide, that's people trying to step into somebody else's shoes and take on, I don't know, just trying to understand where they're coming from is difficult if you've never been there and you can't even put yourself in that mindset. So I do think that um, in terms of, especially with Hollywood and stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the conversation is open now because more and more people 
are coming forward and um, especially with bipolar, Mm -hmm. you're constantly hearing in the news that, you know, bipolar is is prevalent in a lot of different people and they're coming forth. But also in terms of like the actual percentage of the population, there are still more people who I think don't necessarily directly experience it. So it does make the understanding harder. And I think that um, in terms of like, especially with things like uh, gun shootings, you know, situations like that and everything, mental illness is, there is some proponent of, of the population that's always like, blame the guns. And then other people are like, blame mental illness mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. it's both, you know, it's mentally ill people with guns. It's people who are not mentally ill with guns, mm-hmm. but it's, um, it is still seen to me in my perception, not that my perception is right, as something of blame, as a fault, as right. a problem, not necessarily as yeah. something that is an actual legitimate illness. Right. You know, and in terms of bipolar and, and schizophrenia and a lot of mental illness, it is an actual chemical imbalance. It's legitimately a problem with your body, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it manifests itself in such... Um, on just not great ways that it's hard, I think, for people to separate the actions that people are taking from the fact that it is an illness that is causing this. You know, and even Mm. for me, in my story I had written, you know, like my mother saying to me that uh, she wishes that I had it and that way I would understand, um, which does, it hurts because I see how it causes her to react and she does, she can do mean things, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's hard sometimes, even if it's a person you love, to separate their actions from the illness. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. For sure. Because there's also like a, I don't know, with people in my life that are mentally ill, they always say, um, listen, it, just because I am this way in particular, it doesn't excuse me if I'm horrible. So mm-hmm. like always let me know if I'm horrible. And then there's also the other side of it. And I'm like, but can I really blame you? Like, it, right. because it is something yeah. else that is, that is affected. Yeah, that yeah. is at play. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's you, of course. It is, it's, it's part of who you are. But at the same time, is it really, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. It's something yeah. that is affecting you that if this was not present, um, this person would probably be different and probably would mm-hmm. not do these things. Right. But it, you can also say that about, anything about a person you know what i mean yeah this person hadn't gone to middle school in this particular place they would not be this way right. you know so it's about understanding all the different facets of a person right. and especially something like this that is so unavoidable like mm-hmm. when someone is ill like you like we hear it over and over again that you wouldn't tell a cancer patient to get over it right. so right, right. why would you tell someone with any sort of mental illness to get over it just because mm-hmm. it's not physically manifested and with this it is like to some degree physically manifested it is and in terms of um you know i talked about her suicidal tendencies and her double suicide attempt Mm -hmm. um and then my suicidal thoughts and everything there's it's hard when you see how an actual illness is affecting somebody to want to even tell them like oh you shouldn't do this you know like get over it basically Mm -hmm. it it makes you think about suicide from a different perspective in a way because you're like this person is actually hurting. Mm-hmm. Like this is a legitimate thing. They are dealing with an illness that is treatable at best, certainly not curable. Like who mm-hmm. are we actually? Like how selfish is it? We call that person selfish, but isn't it equally as selfish mm-hmm. to say, don't do that, keep suffering yeah. right. for mm-hmm. other people's, mm-hmm. you know, other people's yeah. behalf. But mm-hmm. then on the flip side, 
of course, you don't want anybody to take their own life. It's difficult, mm-hmm. though, if you mm-hmm. can put yourself actually Image. into the thought of it. This is mm-hmm. an illness, yeah. a real one to them, you know? Mm-hmm. So the title, This Is Our Dance, is referenced a few times in the story, most notably in the scene where you find your mom with fresh cuts and end up returning your mom's keys, citing, this is the end. What was going through your head at the moment? When I, when I dropped off the keys, mm-hmm. just that I, I was done. I mean, this is, at this point, I think I was, I was 27, I think. And this is a whole lifetime of this, you know? and mm-hmm. um. I mean, if you guys saw my mom's arms, you would understand, you know, but she has uh, long before I was even born, just been a self mutilator. And, um, you know, just it it was when it finally really clicked to me that it wasn't going to change, that this is not mm-hmm. really getting better, that through mm-hmm. the years it's only getting worse. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I was so yeah. tired. I just didn't. Nothing was going to change at that point so I just dropped the keys off and I was like you know what do whatever you want and granted I mean she was already in bed so I didn't think she was going to get up and run out of the house at that point she calmed down but Mm -hmm. it just occurred to me that I didn't want to live if that was how it Mm -hmm. was always going to be because that is my life and it is my life and it was you know just living in it at all the time it's not when you know there isn't really a solution, there isn't really a cure, there's no end, mm. how do you find the strength to keep going? Mm-hmm. I mean, I did, obviously, here I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, you know, and honestly, that's part of why I don't live in Chicago anymore. That's a huge part of why I've stayed mm. in New York, despite the fact that all of my closest friends and my family are all there. Um, I mean, in work also, there's a lot of work here, but there's a lot of work there. Um, but if I go home, and this is just something I had to f- figure out growing up. But if I go home and I stay for too long and if I stay in their house, which is something I don't do anymore, I end up right back there. Because to see it and have to live within day in and day out is um, it's too much, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's better in these circumstances to live apart for my own sanity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's also like an important thing to. Yeah, mm-hmm. to to. An important takeaway from this is like, okay, yes, at the end of the day, the people who are mentally ill and the people who do need treatment, like those voices are centered, but a big part of their story as well is a story of the people that they impact. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's, I don't know, it was it was really, really great to hear your story only because, not only because, what the fuck, <laughs> because it's, it's. I don't know. It's necessary. Like people are usually very quiet about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's what you learn to, to just keep it quiet. I mean, this is the first time I've ever written it all out like this. You know, lots of people know lots of different parts, but it's never been laid out on paper like this, you know, and this is skimming the surface (laughs) as Mm -hmm. it is, but I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to be a novel. Mm. (laughs) And on the topic of, um, bringing this forth for the first time what would you like listeners to take away from this story um i think i guess don't take responsibility for things that aren't yours um you know you can't take on the task of somebody else's happiness you can't take on 
their suffering and allow it to be your suffering mm-hmm. and allow it to be your guilt and allow it to be what you are basing your life around, which is what I did, which is what I still struggle with doing. I mean, even right now, there's it's a lifetime of learning and it's going to be a lifetime of change for sure. It's going to it's not going to ever end. You know, it's always going to be a reformation, learning a new dance. Um, but you can't take on somebody else's stuff as your own because you won't live. You know, you have no chance of of living your own life if you allow that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, like I said, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Welp, that concludes our ninth episode of the season, The Adult. We are so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and a Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes action. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hoped you loved these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night!